to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California.
Um, just as Darren was praying, I, I had a sense that somebody is um, just listening to Bill speak. You had that's you had the sense, this surge of that's me. I need to do that, and 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 you're working hard to tamp that down. Pay attention. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. Say yes. Don't find reasons to say no. Does that make sense? Um, and I, I want to pray for courage because you're, you're, you're already starting to create a list of, of pros. But the list of cons is longer. Can I pray against that spirit of fear with you right now? Does anybody just lean into that with me? Lord Jesus, I just pray for those of us who are, are, are feeling the draw, uh, not just of, of emotion with the stories of kids who need help. But really that, that kind of push, that pull, that draw of the Holy Spirit that is saying to us, that's you. I need you to do this. I want you to do this. I will be with you in the doing of this. And Lord, um, you know our fear is already starting to push back. We're already starting to make excuses. We're already starting to list the reasons why we can't do it. Lord, I pray against that spirit of fear. Against that... Um, that really that control that we think we have over our lives that has gone along as it is without interruption. And now we realize there's a risk involved with putting ourselves in the front line. Lord, I pray against the spirit of fear and for the spirit of love, which pushes out fear. And give us the courage, Lord, even to just step into the meeting and get more information but more specifically to sign up and become part of your transforming presence in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So over the last uh, couple of three weeks, we have begun uh, what for us I think will be a 14, 15, 16-week series on uh, loving God and loving self and loving uh, neighbor. And so... Uh, in, in last week, Peter uh, led us through a, a reflection on, on what it means for God to be present as Moses uh, becomes aware that the name of God that he has been given in Exodus chapter 3 is not much of a name. We, we sing occasionally, we love to shout your name, O God, Yahweh, Yahweh. It just means, it's, it's literally the Hebrew verb of being. I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. So, so what kind of a name is it that when God is kind of teasing Moses with giving him a name, a memorial name, he calls it in Exodus 3, by which he can be known and upon whom he can call, what does it mean when God says to him, my name is the verb of being? What does that mean? I think it means what you probably are already starting to think it means, but as Peter unpacked it last week, that means that wherever you are, I am. That because you are, I am. That as long as you exist, you exist because I am. There is no other 
entity being in the universe that exists except I am. Does that make sense? That, that the fact of existence is rooted in the name of God. That there is no other independent reality. Everything exists because He does. This, of course, is the Genesis 1 story of creation and so on and so forth. So the question of, of, of what is your name raises a whole series of other questions for us, right? What do you like? What is your name and what do you like? Are the two key questions that Moses wants answered. So he has the answer to the first question. What is your name? My name is Yahweh. I will be with you. There was, which is, by the way, unique in the ancient Near Eastern world. Gods were anchored to, to land. Gods were anchored to soil. They were, they were part of a mountain or part of, a, of an icon, part of a river. Right? They're the thing that helped people understand how to, how to manage their reality. So the God was anchored to a location. This is why uh, you see throughout the Old Testament people wanting to take, take bags of dirt from, from Palestine back to their homeland in Babylon so that they could worship the God of this dirt in Babylon. The, the, the story of the king, Naaman, who comes and, and wants to be cleansed of his leprosy. And you, you see this kind of thing going on and on. And one of the things that Moses has to keep reminding his people is there's nowhere you can go that God isn't. That He is present. He is the very essence of, of existence. Paul says it this way in the New Testament. In Him, we live and move and have our existence. In Him. It's not that God is in everything. It's that everything is in God. That is huge. When we, come, when we come to think about this. So now that we come to that awareness, the question is, what do you like? Now that we know who you are, so to speak, what do you like? And we come to this story in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And, 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 and I tried to figure out a way to do this by and narrow this down. But I'm going to have to ask you to read the whole chapter with me. It's an impossible uh, consideration to do this any other way. So if you've got a Bible... Uh, this one here is on, uh, starts on page 62. If you need some, we've got them on the sides here. And please feel free to pick one up. It's really helpful to have a program so you can tell who the players are. Um, and in this one particular, that's going to be helpful. So if you need one, just stick up your hand and we'll make sure we get one to you. We've got uh, somebody back there. Uh, thanks, Kevin. A couple more over there. Good. Thank you. So once again, we're on page 62 here in this version of it. And I'm using the new international version um, uh, not because it's the best one, but because Darren likes it. So, is everybody awake? Y'all doing good? So, okay, that was just in to test. So, here's one more thing before we get into this. Um, if God is who He is revealed to be to Moses and through Moses to us, i.e. the ground of all being, the essence of existence, we join a program already in progress. Does that make sense? We're, we're coming in to the third season. Fourth season. We are, we are, we're coming into an, a, 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 a 
multi-act play partway through Act 3. So, we don't do theology from the beginning. We don't do our thinking about God from with a bank blank slate. We come and do theology from below. We do theology from our perspective. How many of you know that you've got a perspective? And that that perspective, that worldview, that way of thinking influences how you filter every one of the experiences of your life. And that if that perspective is somehow skewed or off, everything that comes into that perspective will be skewed or off. So that's why these early stories in Genesis are so important to us. We want to get the foundation right so that the prism of our, or that the, the lens of our understanding of who God is and what He is doing is right. Because if we get it wrong, we will be not just wrong in our thinking, but because our thinking has application to our living, we'll be wrong in our acting too. Does that make sense? So as we look at this story, I want you to realize we're looking at this from below. And second of all, we are dealing with a narrative people, an oral people, not a written culture, but a story culture. They believe that the best way to contain real truth, not just the facts about something, but the truth about something was through story. They consigned things that weren't that important to paper, to papyrus, to shards of pottery. That's why when we, when we see these, uh, when we, we do these uh, excavations, it's not uncommon to find shopping lists scraped into the clay of a, of a broken pot. You, you just put stuff on, on, on material that's going to be thrown away, that's going to disappear. But if you want something to carry your culture, you tell stories. You tell stories. Right? And, 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 and so, so, so if I were to ask you what the story of your family is, you could probably give me a list of dates and names that would give me a snapshot as to where you came from and who you're related to and the family tree. But if you really wanted me to know your culture, what would you do? You'd tell me stories. You'd tell me stories of last Christmas with great uncle Harry. Right? Or you tell me the story of a, of a great-grandfather who came over, uh, stowed in, the, in, a, in a boat somewhere, smuggled. Or you tell stories of, you tell the story, and that story helps me to know who you are. Right? If you go to the south, and if, you, if, you were, if I were to go to the south and, and, uh, of, of the country and somebody were to ask me who I was, I would not use my name, Dogterum. Because there's five of us in the entire North American continent. Dutch people are not, uh, uh, you know, we're more in Canada, right? But if I wanted you to know who I was, I would say my, my mom's maiden name was Trenum. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you. But if you were in the South, you would see my name emblazoned on statues and with streets named after them. Because I had a great, 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 great uncle who fought as a Civil War wrong side, but nonetheless, a Civil War uh, veteran in the South, Robert Trenum. Right? So when you hear the stories, and I'm sorry for taking so much time to set this up, but this story is so important, and I'm going to snapshot it real quick 
So don't panic. Right? But it's so important that you understand. We do theology from below. That means our perspective is shaped from that. And second of all, we do theology by story. That, doesn't, that means it's really hard to argue with. You don't argue with story. You just hear them and tell them and are shaped by them. So here's the story. In Exodus, so far we have been delivered from Pharaoh and Egypt. We are now camped around the mountain of God, Horeb. And God has given us the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Ten Rules of the Game, the Ten Standards of of Covenant that He has bound Himself to. While He is doing that, we have been down at the base of the mountain partying. Because Moses, the guy from whom we are receiving these ten words, has been gone for a little bit longer than we feel comfortable with. He's been up there for almost a month and a half. And we're not sure if like, he got incinerated by that first lightning strike that we saw. We don't know. And in the meantime, we're starting to panic because things are getting out of hand here. So we go to Moses' brother, Aaron. And when I say we, what's the point of story? It's not about them. It's about us. It's our story. That's why it's here. Right? So when we panic, what do we do? We want to put handles onto our experience and manage them some way. Those are called gods. Those are called idols. And Aaron, afraid of the mob mentality, decided to acquiesce, to give in to the demands of the people for a God that they could manage. And so he invited us all to take our jewelry, throw it into the fire, and out popped this golden calf. And we were making merry around it when Moses comes down the mountain. Right? So the very first commandment, not to have any other gods before him, we have violated within before we even had the word. Right? Commandments are broken. 3,000 of us die as penalty for that worship. And now Moses has, been, has heard from God. All right, look. This is where we pick it up. All right? Verse 1, chapter 33. It says this. It says, there we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you... And the people you brought up out of Egypt, by the way, notice the differentiating that's talking to take. Who brought them up out of Egypt? Moses did and God did. But now it's you. you they're your people. You brought them up. And, and this is going to play out as we go through the story. You brought them out of Egypt and go to the land I promised on oath to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the, here's the problem. I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Now remember, who has God revealed Himself to Moses to be? The God out of whose presence you can never go. So when He says, I will not go with you, He says, I will not go with you in a way in which you are discernible of My presence. Because if I do, I might kill you. So this is a protection for Israel. Not a punishment, a protection. Does this make sense? He is still going to fulfill His promises. But if I go, 
you might die before I get a chance to do that. Why? Because you are a stiff-necked people. I suspect this golden calf is not the last we're going to hear of this. Right? So, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And nobody put on any ornaments. In other words, this idea of rejoicing for moving forward into the, into the new season. Nobody put on any ornaments. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away and called it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, which was symbolizing the presence of God, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. Now listen to this line. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So then Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. You have found favor with me. I love this line now. Remember the last line? Spoke to Moses friend to friend. Now who also is going to take advantage of the friendship? If you are pleased with me, if you're my friend, teach me your ways that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Now what is Moses asking for here? He's asking to know God. He's asking for a relationship of intimacy with God. He's not asking God to go with them. Moses has been told by God to leave. Notice this. I love this, the way this story works. Because you can't ask directly. Right? In the ancient Near Eastern culture, a direct request would be an insult. So you have to let the other one come to the conclusion himself. Do you see what he's doing here? Does anybody else find this fascinating? Sorry, this is so exciting to me. I've got to back up here. Okay, so, 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 so you see here just this interplay of Middle Eastern culture. It's the same today. You can't make a direct request. You have to let people think this was their idea all along. Right? So, Moses, you go on. I'm not going with you. Oh, Lord, I just want to know you more. I love you, Lord. I want to know you more. If I'm your friend, please show me your ways. Let me know you. Now, God is thinking. How can I do that, which I want so desperately to do, if he's leaving and I'm not? You see the strategy? Now, how do, you, how do you get away with that, with the living God who is the very ground of your existence? You risk relationship. Is that making sense? So, Moses is leaving. He wants God to teach him his ways. What is the only way this can happen? 
if God goes with them. So he says what? My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Go ahead and the next one there. Then Moses said to him, I love this, if your presence does not go with us. Now remember, what has God just said? And so what is Moses now saying? I will go if... Wait, 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 wait. wait. This is Almighty God speaking here. There's no if. When He says things, things happen. Right? Now notice where Moses is going with this. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people? What? Unless you go with us. Who's God pleased with? Who's he not pleased with? What is Moses doing? He is joining himself whom, with whom God is pleased to God's people with whom God is not pleased. He is interposing himself between God and the people. It's not the first nor the last time he will do this. He is essentially saying, you have to get through me to get to them. Now, do you understand why this is in story form? This would be really hard to get into a systematic theology somewhere. This is a story. So God says, how will anyone... Oh, by the way, please notice the secondary implication of Moses' logic here. Who is Moses concerned with? He is concerned with God's character outside of Israel. What are the nations, what are the other people, what are the other gods going to say if you bring us out here and abandon us? If you bring us out here and kill us? Your name's not going to be very highly regarded if you do that. Fundamentally is what he's saying. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the earth except your presence? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. Please notice, did Moses ask? If you read through the narrative carefully, he did not ask for one thing except to what? Show me your ways. I want to know you. You see? I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you. I love this. And I know you by name. This is, a different, this, is, this is different than God's knowing about Moses. This is different than God's knowing the, the chemical composition of Moses' body as a, as, a, as a physician or a biologist or whatever. This is about relationship. Do you feel, do you get the sense of this? This is about Moses, you have, you have risked knowing me intimately and now I'm going to risk knowing you intimately. I know you by name. I've given you my name. And now I'm going to risk you knowing me by name. Please notice, friends, God wants to be intimate with us. He knows everything there is to know about us, but knowing us is a different thing. He wants to know us. And that, friends, is in your hands, not His. He will never force Himself on you. 
He will only open the door by letting you know Him. We spent, I, I grew up in a culture, Pentecostal church culture, that taught us to pray, Oh God, I want to know You more. How many recognize that prayer? I want to know You more. Nobody ever taught me to pray, Lord, I want You to know me more. But that's the prayer of Moses. Are you starting to get a sense of why God is willing to go for a walk in the desert with him and one and a half million of his worst friends? When God finds a man, a woman, a person who wants not just to know him, but to be known of him, he will go to the death for that one. That's what the incarnation of Jesus is about. So he goes on. Uh, I'm sorry, can you back it up one more? My fault. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, I love this, now show me your glory. Sign, I, I need you to sign the contract on the dotted line. Because pr- glory is visible presence. So God is saying, I will go with you. And Moses says, I want to see your glory. That's what glory is, by the way. Is that when, when Moses sees the bush burning without being consumed, it's the glory of God that he has seen. It has weight. The Hebrew word for, for glory is kavot. It means heavy. It means weighty. Lord, let me see you leave a footprint. Let me see your glory. I've heard your promise. I believe your promise, but I need to see your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be afraid that might be just pushed it one step too far. Right. But Moses and God are friends. So what is the relationship? Moses says, I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, "Okay, I will cause just what? My goodness, just my goodness, to pass by in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord. That's the, this, you see the small caps, that's Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Go ahead. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. That, I, that idea, then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. Literally, the Hebrew says, you will see where I just was. So he's not walking, watching the, the retreating figure of God. He's seeing the space that has been disturbed by God's presence. You with me? And that's as much as he can handle. Anything more direct than that will kill him. So God is protect. I love the imagery. Do you see the delicacy of this? 
how God cares for a man, a woman, a person who longs to know him and be known of him. You can't see my, how can I work? Yeah, you can't. Okay, here's, the, here's what we'll do. Stand by me on the mountain, which is, by the way, just a trip on its, how do you stand by God who is everywhere? Anyway, stand by me on the mountain. And, 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 and there's, a, there's a little bit of an opening, a cave in the rock. When I pass by, I'll put you in the, I'll put you in that cave, right? And then I'll cover the entrance to the cave with my hand, with my hand, with my hand, ah, right? And, and it's starting to get the feel that Moses is saying, "I'm not sure I knew what I was asking for here. This is getting a little frightening, right?" But and when I pass by, I will remove my hand so that you can see the air disturbed where I just was. Mm-mm-mm. Right? Okay. Then the, then the Lord said to Moses, Now chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. <laughs> I love that. Be ready in the morning, then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I'm just going to sit with this one for a minute because this is the essence of the answer to the question. I know who you are. What are you like? And the people who learn this are those who want not just to know God, but to be known of Him. He says, first of all, that He is the Lord. This is a declaration of His covenant name again. But then He says, the compassionate and gracious God. This is who He is. He's compassionate and He's gracious. He is slow to anger. He maintains and abounds in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is what our God is like. This is what He's like. Now notice how quickly we move to the last verse. The degree to which you live in the last verse instead of the first verse is the degree to which you have a level of intimacy with God and are risk not just knowing Him, but being known of Him. Please notice what he says. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. What's he doing here? This sounds, this sounds unreasonable, doesn't it? Please notice, this is story, first. Second, what God is saying here is simply describing reality. He's simply describing a certain kind of reality. If you live in the reality of a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, if you live in that reality, 
You don't have to worry about verse 7b. Right? You don't have to worry about it. It's not about you. But if you choose to live in guilt, in rebellion against this God, why would you ever do that? I don't know. But you might. And if you do, guess what? It will have consequences, not just for you, but your kids and your kids after them. This isn't about generational sin. This is about family systems. This is a description of the way reality works. When a father, a mother sets the trajectory of their family to know, love, honor, and serve God, that works itself out too. And if a child uh, decides to rebel against their parents, God's saying, well, we can't have you both rebelling and experiencing the love and joy and kindness of God. So, 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 so what are we going to do? We're going to let you go your own way. What? Oh, yeah. You don't have to follow him. You don't have to honor him. You don't have to worship him. He's not going to force you to. You don't even have to know him. But if you don't, you step into a very different kind of reality that will also continue on to your kids and your kids following them. Do you see why this is so troublesome to us? We want to live in rebellion without consequences. Sorry. It, it just doesn't work. That's to deny the nature of the reality of the God who is. That's not how He operates. If you get yourself, remember the image I've been using here, if you get the cylinder of your life sideways to the flow of grace and mercy, grace and mercy still flows, but you don't get to share in the benefits of it. It feels oppositional to you. And that will translate down into the next generations. It's not, it's not punishment. It's reality. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And you can turn that anytime you want with repentance. In fact, by the time we get to the prophets in the 8th century, God will say, no longer will I visit the sins of the children and the fathers on their children. Everybody will have the opportunity. But this is in this part of the journey. So intimacy brings the risk of knowing and being known. And Moses here is invited in the description of this kind of reality to reveal a God who is, who is what? What's He like? He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands. Literally, the Hebrew and behind that is thousands of generations. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Anybody else beside me grateful for that reality of the God who is? This is what He's like. This is what He's like. Let me say this again. This is what He is like. Now, he is also willing to let you walk away if you wish. And I don't, I don't I, I, we, we, can't, we can't pretend that's not so. But if you do, remember, this is going to trip you up for the next two or three generations. 
is filled with this kind of loving kindness. Now, how did Moses get to know God this way? By a willingness to be known of God. The series that we're in is called Loving God, Loving Neighbor, Loving Self. It builds off the Shema. I did a couple of weeks ago on that. Jesus' statement, of course. What is the greatest commandment? What sums everything up? And here's what Jesus says. You don't have to worry about verse 7b if you love the God of verse 6 and 7a. Remember what we said? Love orients us to a certain way of life and living. If we're afraid of God, it's because we don't know Him. Because to know Him is to love Him. And Moses has just said to us, actually it works the other way. To love Him is to know Him. This is why Jesus doesn't say, believe the right things about God. He says, love Him. If you get that orientation right, you will begin to lean into the knowing of God. And you will discover Him to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Which is good news for the kinds of people we are. Hmm? The two key words here that I want you to notice are compassionate and gracious. These are the Hebrew words chesed and chemet. These are the characteristic words by which God will be known. Those two words, if you do a word study on loving kindness and tender mercy, which is how they're usually translated, or compassion and graciousness, you will see that all the way through the Old Testament. This is who God is. This is His middle name. He is filled with loving kindness and tender mercy. That's who He is. And you know that by orienting yourself to loving Him. You experience that at the center of your being. One of the things that I struggle with always when we talk about this is how hard it is to be loved by God. To be loved for no good reason. To be loved without performance. To be loved without demand. To be loved in such a way that we are now free to walk in the character of our Father who loves us this way. It's really hard to be loved that way, isn't it? Can you, anybody else feel the, 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 the clenching? And the realization to be loved that way means I just don't have any control. That's the problem, isn't it? We want to be loved for something in us. And He says to us, there is plenty in you. But I don't love you for what's in you. I love you for who I am. Now, frankly, for people who look in the mirror and know what's actually in them, that's really good news. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He treats us out of His character, not out of ours. That's good news. Right? That's good news. So Moses is inviting us to know this God. God. To have the courage, to have the boldness, to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Because Moses knows if we love Him this way, if we love Him with our whole being, guess what? We will discover Him to be kind and gracious, filled with 
loving kindness and tender mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, sin. That's what we will discover if we risk knowing and being known. If we risk loving and being loved. If we risk. So here we have this contrast between the people of God who hold themselves at distance because they're afraid. Who never learn who God really is. And Moses, who is willing to step in boldly where angels fear to tread. Speaking with God friend to friend. Loving Him with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moses has nothing to lose. What do you have to lose? What control do you have to give up in order to know this God this way? Does that make sense? Now here's what's fascinating to me and with this I'm going to come to conclusions. The words chesed and chemet, as I mentioned, are, are literally scattered throughout the remainder of the Old Testament as the two covenant language characteristics of God. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. His mercy and faithfulness. The end of Psalm 23. Same words, right? When those words get translated from Hebrew into Greek and then from Greek into English, they get translated grace and truth. Grace and truth. These are the two primary characteristics of our God. Now, I want you to notice what John does this with this in John chapter 1. Go ahead, please. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The Word became flesh. That Word, that Logos, that One that was with God in the beginning, that Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. The glory of the One and Only The One who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Chesed and Chemet. We, like Moses, have seen His glory. And as we draw near to Jesus, who is the incarnation of this God whom Moses prayed to know, He is not waiting any longer for us to come to Him. He has come to us. And as we draw near to Him, we see His glory. Glory of the only begotten of the Father. Glory of the one and only begotten. And what do we see of Him? He is full of grace and truth. And then I love this little line. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, the Logos, the Word, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. And behind this, the Greek is, has exegeted Him perfectly. Do you want to know what God the Father is really like? Because please notice, we have to push back, don't we, against a culture of misunderstanding of the Old Testament God. He's angry. He's bitter. He's vengeful. He's, he's punishing. He's, he's this. And, and Jesus is not like Him at all. No, you don't understand. 
Jesus is the most like Him of any human being on the face of the earth. He embodies Him perfectly. He is filled with grace and truth. The very things that make God, God. He unpacks. If you want to know what God the Father in the Old Testament is like, get to know Jesus really well. Filter your understanding of the Old Testament God through the lens of your relationship with Jesus. And you'll be on the right track. It's a risk. It's a risk. Are you up for it? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege that's ours to know you and to be known of you. It is terrifying, O oh Lord, for us to sit in that reality. For us to be aware, O oh Lord, that um, you have capacity because we exist in you to stop thinking of us and we cease to be. Lord, I pray that we won't live in fear of You, but rather that we would live in awe of You. Honestly, respectful of Your majesty, but willing to respect You enough to take You seriously when You say that You want to know us and You want to be known of us. Not just at a at a religious level of difference and distance, but at the very center of who we are. You want to come into the unexplored passages of our lives and let Your loving kindness, Your tender mercy, illumine that. Forgive that darkness, those sins, that rebellion. And we recognize, Lord, we have lived, many of us ourselves, the, the fact that if we don't take advantage of that knowing and being known, we will live in darkness and it will translate to those who follow us. Oh God, please, please help us to know You. To walk with You. I'd like you to just sit for a moment faith and and the team begin in a moment to lead us in worship and consider. What are you afraid of? Where are you afraid for God to know you? What are the places in which trust is so hard for you? And even as we've looked at the text this morning, you realize how silly that is, and yet still we cling to the illusion of our control. I want to invite you to risk loving God this way. Risk stepping in to knowing Him and being known of Him. Pushing back against the fear. as we enter into worship. If you want to come and find a place to pray and somebody to pray with you, feel free to do that. If you want to make your way to the altar, to the cross, to the table, elements of communion, you can feel free to do that. If you want to invite somebody you're with just to pray with you against that fear that paralyzes you from love and let love drive out that fear.
Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.